Turn your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel in chapter 23. We're still not done with David. I, I have probably about two more. And I really haven't gone through all of, all of this, uh, but I've taken some things that I were, thought were significant about David's life and lifted them out and said, here's you know, who he is. So hopefully that's been helpful to you. Um, 2 Samuel 23 is where I want to be this morning. We're looking at the life of David. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. During, we're in verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 13. During harvest time, three of the 30 chief men came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephraim. At that time, David was in the stronghold and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water, and he said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. Verse 16. So the three mighty men broke through the Philistines' line, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at risk of their own lives? And David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty men. You may be seated. So Father, take these, apply them to our heart. Um, and more than anything else, we pray that we draw closer to you because of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when you read, and we've said this before, we'll say it again, we'll probably say it again. When you read passages from the Old Testament, David and Goliath, and Abraham and Isaac, Jonah, and the fish, there's a tendency to read these things as though we read them like Aesop's fables or a, a, a story that has a, a moral to it. However, when Jesus came back from the dead in Luke 24, he tells us he met his disciples on the road to Emmaus and also in the upper room, matter of fact. And he says, it's interesting that you read the Bible for years and years and years and years, yet you have no idea Messiah was supposed to be raised from the dead. You have no idea that that's what's supposed to happen. And he says, you read it, but you don't understand it. And then he says in the same passage in Luke 24, beginning with the law of Moses and all the prophets and the Psalms, Jesus showed them what was said in all the scriptures concerning him. All the scriptures. So Jesus is saying, you can't handle life, guys, because... You're reading the Bible at a very moralistic level, like a fable. You don't realize that every prophet in the Bible is pointing to me. Every priest in the Bible is pointing to the true priest. Every king is pointing to the true king, and every servant is pointing to the true servant. In other words, we can either read the Bible as mainly about us, about our lives, an example for us, and if that's how you read it, truthfully, the Bible will crush you. 
The Bible will crush you. That's how think, people think about Christianity. When they, when they look at our, our scripture and what we have, they, they don't like it. It'll crush you if you read it that way. Unless you understand that this book is primarily about Jesus Christ from beginning to end, from cover to cover, you will not find your life changed. It will be a good moral. This is about what he's done. And this is about what he's done to save us and what he's done in history to redeem us. And only when you see that does the life-changing aspects of the Scripture make a difference in your life when you see it's about Jesus. So to understand Scripture, you have to do some reflection. When you look at this passage of Scripture, you say, well, what does, what does this passage of Scripture have to do with that in my life? What is this that we read this morning? Who are these mighty men? Who are these guys? Why is this being placed in Scripture? Well, we know, because we've been studying this for some time, when King Saul became aware that David was to be the next king, he was enraged by that. He didn't want David taking over for him. So he was enraged. He began openly to try to kill David. And David runs into the wilderness. He was out there for a long, long time. And when he was in the wilderness, some men gathered around him. And at one time, it was almost 400 plus men that gathered around David. And these men became his guardians, his companions. They were men of war, and eventually they did save David's life. So Saul dies now, and David becomes king. After he becomes king, these men became David's military elite in his army. They were a team. They were a family. They'd been together for a long, long time. They knew each other. They, they breathed together, ate together. They were battle-hardened. They'd been fighting all these many years, and eventually they became the leaders in David's army. Eventually. They were called his mighty men. His mighty men. But this, this is interesting. This incident didn't happen when David was running from Saul. At this point in Scripture, Saul had died. This happened right after he was crowned king. The Philistines decided they're going to invade Israel. It's not much different than what's going on today in our country. What, what have you? you get a new president, and the other nations want to test, want to test. Who is this guy? Can we test this guy? And the Philistines decided they're going to invade Israel. They're going to knock this new king down, maybe capture him, weaken him. They didn't want this new kingdom to get too strong. So they, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more next week. So they invade, right? And verse 13, they tell us that during harvest time, three of the 30 chief men came down to David, the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephraim. That's important. Where is Rephraim? At that time, David was in the stronghold and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. Now, actually, we learn a lot from this. Historically, we learn a lot from what is being said just here. The Philistines were encamped in the valley of Rephraim, just 
a few miles southwest from the capital city, Jerusalem, a few miles from Jerusalem. They'd taken Bethlehem as their headquarters. Bethlehem was David's hometown. The city of David, right? Bethlehem. We sing about it at Christmas time. The Philistines were in the heart of Israel, just a few miles from the capital. We're told as a result of this, David had to flee, set up headquarters in a cave. He's in a cave. Israel is weak. Verse 13 says it's harvest time. It's harvest time. They were on the verge of disaster. They were on the verge of starvation. If the Philistines began to destroy the harvest, part of Israel would be out of food. We, we sense some of that today with the baby food thing, right? You know, that, that's a disaster. It's not good. It's not good. The new king is in the wilderness, in a cave. The Philistines are in the heart of Israel trying to overthrow him. And you have to understand that to understand verse 15. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. Listen to me. David's not thirsty. David's not thirsty. So, well, what are you talking about? It says right there he's longing for, you know, he, he, he's longing for what? Fact is, fact is, we know he wasn't thirsty because there was no way you had your own camp with 400 men and didn't have a, weren't doing that by a spring or by a well. There, there was a spring somewhere. You had a lot of people that were out there. And there was a spring there. David was not thirsty. He couldn't have been. He couldn't have been. David's not longing for water here. It's something else. Something else is going on. That's the only possible explanation for what these guys did. What these mighty men did at this point. It's not physical thirst. It's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. David's wrestling here. Look at where he's at. He's wrestling with the promises of God. God promised he would be with David. God promised David would be the deliverer, the ruler of Israel. God promised David that he would fulfill this tremendous destiny in world history. God promised these things. And all these promises, God says, I'll be with you. I'll do this. I'll walk with you. I'll be with you. And now David is so weak, he can't even get a drink from his hometown. He's in a cave. He's really asking, will I ever be able to drink from that well again? My hometown, will I ever be king? Will I ever defeat the Philistines? He's wrestling with the promises of God in his life. How do I know God is with me? 
How do I know that God is with me? Why am I suffering like this? You see, it's, it's not so much a command that he says this to these men. This is a sigh. It wasn't so much heard as it was overheard. Oh, that I might have the sweet water of Bethlehem from my hometown. The water from the gate of Bethlehem to him represented the favor of God. The favor of God. It represented the grace of God, the promises of God. And now, out of 30 mighty men, three step forward. And you can read this in 2 Samuel 23. Their names are Josheb, Eleazar, and Shammah. And they hear the king. And they hear what he's saying, his longing, his sighing. And they realize David and David's not doing a dare. He's not a, you know, one of these, you know, like a double dog dare. He's not, he's not doing that. And you women know that uh, we, uh, there's this thing we have as men. You know, there's this thing that we have as men. If somebody dares us to do, we do stupid things. Mary says, uh, we, had to, we had a shingle blow off our roof, and so we, had, we got painters coming this week. And uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, doing the whole living room area. And Mary says, don't you go up on the roof. Well, I called about five roofing companies, and this was just a small thing up there. They don't want to come for a small thing. So I, and the storm was coming. She said, don't you go up on the roof, don't you go up on the roof. <laughs> Don't you go up on a roof. If something happens to you, I'm in trouble. Don't you go up on a roof. I didn't. That's Jay Germain. <laughs> I called Jay. said, Jay, can you help me? He says, I'll be there in about an hour. And he went up on the roof. Matter of fact, I tried to go up on the roof, and he says, get off the roof. So I, I just thought I'd go up and talk to him. He said, don't come up here. So uh, I, I didn't go up there. So, uh, but we do stupid things. You know, if someone dares us to do things, David's, David's not saying, which of you is man enough to get me a drink of water? Which of you? Go right into the Philistine camp, their headquarters. Which of you? Do? And these guys said, oh, yeah, okay, I, I'll do that. Sure, I'll, I'll do that. That's not it. That's not it. They know what he's after. He's saying, Will I ever be able to drink from Bethlehem, my hometown? Will I ever be able to defeat the Philistines? Will I ever see my home again? Verse 16. So the three mighty men broke through the Philistine line, drew water from the well near the gates of Bethlehem, carried it back to David. <laughs> this is frustratingly minimalistic, so undetailed. Wouldn't you like to know more? Wouldn't you like to know more? See, the Bible, the Bible understands the shallowness and the brevity of human glory. And if you watch, you know, I don't know if you picked these up. I got one a while ago. We, we, we in Detroit, we haven't been able to do this for a while because we have the Lions. But if you watch an NFL film of past Super Bowls, you know, they have this incredible 
you know, you, uh, uh, up on your screen, they'll put incredible music, drums, horns, camera angles that make every touchdown seem like a, a feat of historic glory. You know, we love to hype our accomplishments, don't we? We love to hype our accomplishments. The Bible doesn't do that. And the Bible doesn't romanticize military victory. Never does. Never does. This is not about us. This is a revelation from God. This is holy word. What actually happened in 1 Samuel 14, you see that before there was a Philistine camp that came into the land, there was always a garrison. There was always a garrison. A garrison was sort of an early warning system, if you will. Uh, every garrison had over 20 soldiers in it. So we know that these three guys, they leave the camp of David, they get to Bethlehem, the headquarters, they broke through the lines to Bethlehem's gate, and that was uphill, so they had to fight uphill. And as they fought uphill, they got to the well, and the two guys would have to fight off the others while the one guy was drawing water from the well and filling the, the water skins. Can you imagine what the Philistines were thinking? You know, what, what, what are they doing? Why are they here? Why? Where, where's the rest of the army? What's going on here? What are they after? Gold? Hostages? Water? Water? See, everybody knew. They knew. There's plenty of water out there. There's plenty of water out there. There's other wells. There's other springs. And all the armies would do this. They knew where the water was. And we're told they brought it back to David, and he's astounded, but he's filled with joy. But verse 16 says, he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it for me, O Lord, to do this. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? He wouldn't drink it. He wouldn't drink it. They risked their lives. They stared death in the face. They, they, they hand the water to the king. He looks at it, and he pours the water out on the ground. It forms a little puddle and sinks into the earth without a trace. Were they angry? Would you be? Would you be? We risked our lives. We risked our lives. He didn't even drink it. Didn't drink it. No, they didn't say that. They would have bowed their heads. Because we're told he didn't just pour it out. Look what it says there. It says he poured it out before the Lord. Before the Lord. He turned it into a drink offering to God, an act of worship. David was saying, I realize because of the sacrifice of these men that God is with me. That's what he's seeing now. He's seeing what's happening here. He's watching what's going on. God has spoken a word of grace to David. And David knew that if these three guys could break through the Philistine lines, he could defeat them. And not only did David know this, these three men knew this, and the whole army knew this, for all that we know, this was the turning point. This was the turning point. 
Can you imagine how demoralized the Philistines would have been and how incredibly excited the Israelite army was at this time? We can do this. We can do this. These three men knew they had to do something to turn the war around. David's in the cave. Israel's suffering. They knew David was longing for assurance from God that God was with them. And they bet their lives on the promise of God. They bet their lives on the promise. Verse 17, it ends this way. Such were the exploits of the three mighty men. Great story, isn't it? (laughs) Great story. But what does it mean? What does it mean? Remember what we said. At one level, it's an example for us. It is. At another level, we ask the question, what does this tell us about God? What does this say about what God has done for us? Not just how we should live, but what has God done? Let me show you several things here. First of all, this statement that I want to make here. Um, Anything you learned is really a gift from God. I think you're one ahead of me there. I think. With a PowerPoint. No? Okay. <laughs> I, bow, I bow to your superior wisdom. <laughs> Being pastor here, West Highland, grace of God. It's just the grace of God. Anything you think you have, anything you think you've earned, is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. When David poured the water out before the Lord, he was saying, This is not a trophy. This is a gift. This is a gift. He's saying, I haven't won this. It was only by God's grace that you broke through the lines. It's it's not your strength. It's not your skill. Don't say, we did this. Pour it out. Pour it out. It's an absolute gift. In an article by uh, Andrew Carnegie called, Where Have You Gone, Andrew Carnegie, the article makes an interesting statement says, the super-rich of a former generation gave way to a far greater percentage of their income than the super-rich today. He names the people that are worth billions of dollars today. And he points that they give away what he calls chump change compared to the super-rich of years ago. He's not saying the super-rich years ago were necessarily more virtuous or more or nicer than others. They just had a sense of of duty that people today don't have. The implication of the article, as you read through it, was that we live in a meritocracy today. A meritocracy. You know what that is. In order to get the the best school, the best job, in order to make the most money, you got to kill yourself. You push yourself. You, You earn these things. And if you actually do, you make your money. And you feel, hey, I earned this. Look at everything I did. Look at the schooling. Look at what I put myself through. 
And if I want to spend it on myself, I will. I will. These guys in Scripture almost kill themselves. What they did took skill. And David pours it out. David's saying, did you earn your skill set? Did you earn the fact that you're six foot five, 250 pounds? Did you earn that? Did you earn your brain? Did you earn your talent? How do you look? Is it a, it's a gift. It's a gift. I don't care how skillful you are. And, and think about this, what they did here at this time. I don't care how skillful you are. If you get in and out of an armed camp, all it takes is one arrow. All it takes is one pebble for you to slip and fall on, and you're dead. You're dead. David is saying, whatever you earned in life, whatever you think you've earned, it's not a trophy. It's a gift. It's a gift. Pour it out. Pour it out before the Lord. If you get a little wealth or much wealth, you have to be humble and share it, not proud and selfish. Anything you think you've earned, pour it out before the Lord and say, this is a gift from you, God. This is a gift from you. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. It's not the main point of the story, but boy, it's important. It's important. Second thing, Christian leaders, and I'll talk Christian leaders here and, and, and leaders in the church, have to point their people to God, not exploit them for their own profit. Point people to God. As the most visible Christian leader in the room right now, I've got to be careful I don't get struck with lightning as I say this, but, but these men brought water to David and they showed their absolute devotion to their leader. David pours it out and he says, I'm not worthy of this. I'm not worthy of this. He pours it out before the Lord. This is a lesson for people in the church and for church leaders as well. David is saying, it's right for you to serve me, but serve me for the Lord's sake, not mine. Serve me for the Lord's sake, not mine. You're here to serve God's kingdom. We're here to serve God's kingdom. I happen to be the one that God chose to be pastor at this time in the life of this church. You're not serving me for my sake. You're serving me for God's sake. For God's sake. Look beyond the leader. Look behind the leader. Look around the leader. That's important. You may have a Christian friend who's led you to Christ. You may have a pastor that you, you absolutely have loved and, and admire. Look past them. Look past them. Beyond their example, it's not them. It's the truth they have. It's the message they bring. It's the gospel. It's the gift. It's God. It's God. Otherwise, you're going to be so disillusioned and I'll say this briefly because this will be boring since, since most of you aren't in this position. But David is giving Christian leaders an example here. When people bring their devotion to you, 
pour it out. Pour it out. And pour it out to God right away. Don't drink it. Don't drink it. Some adoration, some compliment. We have to say, Lord, Lord, the reason they like what I'm saying is because you put the love of your truth in their hearts. You put the love of this truth in their hearts and you gave me the gift of communicating that truth. Therefore, it's all you from beginning to end. Not to me, O Lord. Not to me. Here it is. Pour it out. Pour it out. Second point. Don't let leaders exploit. These guys were so totally devoted to their king. A command, a suggestion, a sigh. What does our king want? What does he want? David's sigh was their command. This tells you the difference between a religious person and a Christian. Christians respond to the Lord the way these men responded to David, who is, of course, a type of Messiah. David's a type of Messiah. A religious person basically says, what does God require of me? What do I have to do to get it? What are the rules? What are the rules? A Christian concentrates on God's heart. What do you love? What do you glory in? What gives you pleasure? And his delight is your reward. His delight is your reward. It's not a means to an end. It is the end. It is the end. Christians know what I need is the love and I need the joy of God himself in my life. His delight is your delight. His joy is your joy. And if you want to see that perfectly illustrated, you have a little word that's really been working on my heart this week as I was looking at this passage. It's in verse 15. It says this, oh, he says that somebody would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So, 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 you know why that's been working on me? They didn't have a discussion, didn't have a committee to think about this, didn't say, we're three, what about the 30? What about the rest of them that are here? No, no, no. Their devotion was spontaneous, automatic. Why? Why? There was such a love for David. He sighs, so they went. Occasionally I've used this illustration. When you're working for a boss and you find out what the rules are and you follow them. But when you're in love, when you're in love. You find out what makes the other person happy. You look for hints. You look for sighs. You overhear things. And when you get something, you say, I know what will make that person smile. I, I know how to give them joy. So, you're not passive. You're not passive. And the minute you get a whiff of something that will please them, you say, I have it. I've got this. I got this. What's God's heart beat for? 
What's his heart? The relationship between a Christian and their God is radically personal. The relationship between a religious person and God is very impersonal. If we just look at this like a moral, if we look at this and say, live like this, it's just a big finger wagging at us, saying, you can't do this. You can't, you know, I mean, I mean we, we sing all the songs and we leave the service and say, oh, yeah, 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 we're going to, no, no, you don't. If that's how you look at this thing, you go out saying, I, I don't think I can handle Christianity. What did we say? If you read this simply as about you, you'll be crushed. But if you remember, this is not about you, as Hebrews 12 tells us, says, look to Jesus, the hero, the author and the finisher of your faith. So here it is. Here it is. This is what tells us about God. When David saw the mighty men had broken through and had risked their lives, he had assurance through their sacrifice that God was with him. God was with him. One of the, the, the lifelines given to us is that we watch over other Christians, and we watch other Christians. We watch people, and that encourages us. We watch your faith. You watch my we watch. We see this in the body of Christ. We watch that. It helps us. But there's more. The Bible tells us there's somebody who has heard our sigh. There's somebody who knows us. Somebody who heard your heart longing for water and the water of life. And your sigh for, for being home. David sighed for home. Someone has overheard your heart this morning. Your heart wants a home. You don't even know what that means. You just know you're not built for what's here now. You're not built for this life. This world is not your home. There's a desire for something called home in our heart, in, in us. It's in us. There's a desire for something called home. We thirst for something more, something deeper, something richer. There's somebody, and there's somebody girded himself with love. And he went toward the enemy for us. Jesus broke through the lines, not at the risk of his life, but broke through the lines at the cost of his life. It cost him his life. He poured out his life to give us the assurance that God is with us. And we should be thunderstruck by that. We should be astounded and joyful because of what God has done. It should bring us absolute confidence. Confidence. David just had this temporary sacrifice. Three men who risked their lives, proved God loved them, God was with them, but we have the Son of God. And he overheard our hearts. And he broke through the enemy lines. And he died. He knew the only way that we could possibly ever have the water of life is if he paid the penalty for our sins and died. So, so, knowing his defeat would bring his triumph. He goes to the cross. He's the mighty man who went out and died to show you now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you really see Jesus, if your heart is filled with the memory of you in front of the communion table, Galen was pointing to it last week, do this in remembrance of me. If he's your first love, you'll take on any task, 
You'll take on any task, pay any price. It's small. It's small compared to what he did. And there will be this joy in your life, this heroic spirit about you. Really, honest, honest. I know this is true. I know this is true. Only if you see what he's done, only if you see him poured out for you, will you be able to pour yourself out. Generous instead of selfish, bold for the Lord, joyful for the Lord, then you'll be mighty men and women. You'll all be mighty. You'll all be mighty. Important thing, and I want to close with this. David, David, here's, 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 David's in a cave, right? When the word of grace comes to him. He's in a cave. You know what that means? And you do, because you're all there. He's in a cave. Even though God gave him promises, did everything he said he was going to do, God never fails. He didn't do it the way David thought. He didn't do it the way David thought. David didn't think the invasion of the Philistines was part of the plan. David didn't think being on the run from Saul all of his life was part of the plan. David didn't think being in a cave as the king. Tom Roberts didn't think that Mary's illness was part of the plan. David was in the cave instead of on the throne, and God had said, I will make you king. I will set you up. I will make you a great ruler. But David was always running. David was always in a state of weakness, always suffering. Listen, deep pain brings deep love. Never forget that. Deep pain brings deep love. If you've been given your life to Jesus, if he's your Lord and he's your Savior, the water of life has come to you. If you're a Christian, he's with you. He's for you. If you're suffering, if you're in trouble, if you're in a cave, if there are problems in your life right now, you will see, just like David saw, that these are ways in which God actually answers your prayers. Ways in which God actually makes good his promises in your life. A way in which God actually made David a great king, a great king, that he promised to make him. The Old Testament part says there, he makes a way out of no way. He makes a way out of no way. And he'll do the same for you. I don't care what you're going through in your life. He will do the same for you. If God is for you, and I'm not talking about theory. I'm not talking about theory. I know this personally. I know this. Jesus poured out his life. And just say this to yourself and say this to God and I'll close. If Jesus has done this as we look at the cross and we look at the table, I have nothing to fear. I have nothing to fear. If Jesus has done this, why would God let me down? If Jesus has done this for me, he will be with me. This is a word of grace. A word of grace.
Far be it from me, O Lord. Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this, he said. Is this not the blood of Jesus? See, we're changing it to New Testament. God's gifts. And he not only went out and risked his life, he went out and died. He poured it out for us. Should we not do the same for him? Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our Holy Father, some of us are in caves right now. And we pray, Lord, that as we, we take this communion, that we look at, uh, at, at the poured out blood of Jesus as proof that you're with us. That you're with us. Give our lives total devotion to you. Help us realize and grasp the enjoyment of what Jesus has done for us at Calvary. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.